And good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 16? Now, if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. Just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And uh, this morning we find ourselves in chapter 16. At this point in John's Gospel, we are roughly, well, we're less than 12 hours from the cross, uh, probably more along the lines of nine hours. I think it's around midnight, and Jesus will be hanging on the cross by 9 a.m. the following morning. Now, earlier in the evening, started out in the upper room where Jesus dropped a bombshell on his disciples by telling them he was going away and they couldn't go with him. And even though the work he had begun, they would have to continue in his absence, he promised he wasn't going to leave them alone and helpless like orphaned children. The Lord promised he would send to them another helper, a parakletos, paraclete, one who would come alongside to help them, the Holy Spirit, who would abide with them forever. You can read this in chapter 14, verses 15 to 18. It's all the same idea. It's all the same thought, the same evening. He was telling them these things one after another, and our chapters kind of give us the indication that they were spaced far apart now. Uh, it was all one unfolding discourse, farewell address. And so we pick up in chapter 16, verse 5, the same idea. It's the same thought he's conveying to them. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I'm going away. You can't go with me. Made them very sorrowful. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, guys, based on this section in John's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 5 to 15, we began a series which we've entitled The Ministry of the Holy Spirit. I think it's one of the most important uh, series we've ever done because of the importance of the Spirit in our lives as believers, okay? So if you weren't here, go back the last couple, three weeks and go online. You can listen to the, the previous studies. But as we have already said, uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to unbelievers is different than the ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers. We started out by looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit to unbelievers, because that's where Jesus started it. And verse 8, he said, And when he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world, the world of unbelievers, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Sounds a little ambiguous if you're reading it for, I don't know, not the first time, but uh, if you haven't really dug into it, it sounds a little ambiguous. We tried to make it clearer as we went through these last couple of weeks. So go online again. You can check it out. This morning, I want to now transition into uh, the second main point of the series, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer. We find that in verses 12 to 15. We won't see the whole thing tonight, this morning. But let me just say this. For three and a half years, Jesus has been teaching his disciples the things of God. He made it very clear he wasn't teaching them anything that was of himself, but the Father had sent him to teach these things to these men. In chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus said to them, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And then in John 16, starting with verse 12, he said, I still have many things to say to you. So I've been telling you things for three and a half years that my father wanted you to know, to learn. Now, there's a lot of things I have yet to tell you, all right? This refers to the spiritual truth which, uh, which Jesus um, couldn't give them as of this point. Truth that the Father wanted them to know, but they weren't ready to hear it. Uh, God, of course, is the source of all spiritual truth. And he said to them at the end of verse 12, you know, many things I want to say to you, uh, but you cannot bear them now. Guys, the disciples were too, too full of sorrow and selfishness for Jesus to tell them anything more in the way of spiritual truth than what he already told them. What do I mean? Well, first of all, they were very sorrowful. 
As I said earlier in the evening, he dropped a bombshell on them that, first of all, one of them would betray him. Didn't mention it was Judas. They're gonna, they would find that out soon enough. Uh, that Peter, though, by name, Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter was like the strongest guy of the group. I mean, he was like the unofficial second in command. Okay, a tough fisherman, right? And if Peter is going to deny Jesus three times, where's that going to leave the rest of us? Peter's not going to make it, you know, stand up for Jesus. How can I do that? But I think the thing that really was the knockout punch was when he said, and on top of all that, I'm going away. I'm leaving, but you can't go with me. Not at this time. And so the disciples were full of sorrow, but also selfishness. You see, up until this point, they were waiting for him to establish the kingdom. I mean, that was why they were following him, because they believed he was Messiah. And Messiah was going to establish the kingdom. He was going to lead a revolt against the Romans, overthrow the yoke of Roman dominion, and establish his kingdom. And we're all going to be prime ministers. That was the idea, right? I mean, I'm going to be... I, you can't go away. You haven't established the kingdom yet. I want that parking lot, that parking spot in front of City Hall with my name on it. I've worked hard to get to this place. Three and a half years, right? Uh, you know, and all that, right? So uh, a lot of selfishness there. You can't go away, Lord. You promised us you were going to establish the kingdom, and now you're not going to do that. What's this all about? Now, listen. He also knew that they were spiritual babies. And um, he knew they were too immature spiritually to handle any more spiritual truth than what he had already given. A lot of Christians like that today. You read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. A lot of Christians should be teachers of the word by now, but they still have to be taught the most basic principles of their faith. They're not serious about God's word, okay? I'm not saying they're not saved, they're just not often serious uh, about God's word. But uh, Jesus had given his disciples uh, what the New Testament refers to as the milk. He had given them the milk. What does that mean? Basic New Testament, New Covenant teachings. The deeper things of God, the meat, well, they would have to, that would have to wait until they were mature enough spiritually to handle it. You say, well, when would that be? Well, he goes on in verse 13 to say, however, when, the, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Now, guys, we know the Spirit of God was poured out on these disciples on the Feast of Pentecost, right? On the Feast of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was poured, Jesus had gone to the cross, third day rose from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended back to the Father, prayed the Father, and the Spirit was poured out ten days later. So the Spirit was poured out on, the, on these men, and the church was born on the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, at this point, they were now spirit filled believers they were they were saved throughout jesus ministry under the old covenant they became new testament christians in john 20 when he appeared to them in the upper room after his resurrection he breathed on them and they received the holy spirit we'll cover all of this in detail i'm just throwing it out so that you have something to chew on all right um but then in acts 20 excuse me not acts, 20, acts, acts chapter 2 uh the spirit of god was poured out and now the Holy Spirit came upon them. There's a big difference between somebody who is saved and somebody who is spirit-filled. You say, well, aren't they the same thing? No, not necessarily. There's carnal Christians. They're saved. I mean, the Spirit of God is in them. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Romans uh, 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit in them doesn't belong to Christ. Okay. But there's a difference between being saved with the Spirit in you and then having the Holy Spirit come upon you. That's the empowering for service. That ratchets a person's maturity level up exponentially. Now the Spirit of God is upon them. And they're, and they're able, by the Spirit's grace and power, to understand the deeper things of God. And, and more importantly, willing to take up the cross and live out the deeper things of God, which means put their life on the line, even if need be, to go out into the world and tell people about Jesus. Okay, So these guys, he had given them... It was like elementary school, okay? Kindergarten through eight, or maybe six. When the Spirit came, it was going to be college-level stuff, spiritually speaking, okay? Um, so when the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of truth, uh, He will guide you into all truth. In other words, guys, let me paraphrase. Yes, you're going to be filled with the Spirit. So now you're going to understand the deeper things of God. 
But let me just paraphrase what Jesus is saying here. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will, he will continue your training by giving you the spiritual truth that you're not mature enough right now to receive at this point. He will pick up where I have left off is what the Lord basically is saying, okay? And not only finish giving you the New Testament, because, you know, this idea that he had more to say to them, yeah, the completed, what we call the completed New Testament scriptures. He will finish giving you New Testament doctrine, but also reveal to you what's coming in the future. It's prophecy, right? Why is prophecy so important in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer? Why is that so important to us? We're going to look at that next week. But start thinking about that, okay? And, and understand, there are many churches today that won't go, go, won't go near prophecy with a 10-foot pole. And that's a tragedy and a travesty, okay? We'll study that next time. But guys, this is where the ministry of the Holy Spirit comes in. <clears throat> to continue the work Jesus began, now he's living it through the lives of his people. The Holy Spirit is inside of us. Uh, but when the Holy Spirit came back to those early disciples, he gave them the balance of the New Testament, okay? But also he gave them the grace. And this applies to us too. The grace to understand and apply all of God's truths into our lives so that we, all of us, they, ourselves, to all Jesus' disciples might be able to finish, work, finish the work that Jesus began when he was on the earth in person, the work of the kingdom, and glorify God in the process, right? Remember what, uh, what Luke said. Uh, Luke was a physician, and he accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys, but he was a slave. In those days, um, wealthy people owned uh, doctors. They were usually slaves. Luke was a slave, and his uh, master, his owner, was Theophilus, a man by the name of Theophilus, right? And uh, so uh, Paul had uh, physical issues that, uh, that uh, Theophilus was kind enough, because he got saved, no doubt, uh, let his own personal physician, Luke, accompany Paul to tend to his physical needs. He had some serious issues going on, right? And so um, Luke, in the process, writes, is one of the greatest historians that ever lived, he writes a two-volume set that he sends back to Theophilus, okay? He said in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he said, the former account, the former account I made, O Theophilus. So the former account was the Gospel of Luke. And now this second volume, the book of Acts, okay? But I made this former account, O Theophilus. Listen, of all Jesus began both to do and teach until the day he was taken up, and then afterward he continued that work through the Holy Spirit. I'm paraphrasing, but that's Acts 1, verses 1 and 2. Jesus' ministry only began the work of the kingdom. It is going to be completed through his disciples. Yes, during the church age, but also even during the tribulation period through the tribulation saints. Um, so we're looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer. And the first thing the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would do for the believer is that the Holy Spirit will expound and expand the teachings of Jesus. Look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will speak. Uh, he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. Uh, hears from the Father, of course, is the idea. And he will tell you things to come. So three things in verse 13 that the Holy Spirit will do for the believer. All right? Uh, he will guide you into all truth. Number two, he will not speak on his own authority. And number three, he will tell you things to come. Obviously very important, critically, critically important, uh, foundational things that the Holy Spirit will do for the believer that would then equip us to do all the work God's calling us to do. These are things we absolutely need, okay? Look at John 14, verse 26. As long as you're in the neighborhood, uh, check that out. John 14, 26. Jesus said, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now, if you compare 
uh, John 14, 26 with John 16, verse 13, you kind of get uh, a, a outline or uh, a, um, a progression of what God was going to do to give us the what we call the New Testament canon of Scripture, right? First of all, Jesus said, the Spirit would remind them of all that I have taught you. Guys, that gives us the four Gospels. You remember now that John wrote the Gospel of John 60 years after Jesus lived and died. I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. He's going to remember details from 60 years? John, by this time, is not a young guy. How, how is that possible? Because it was a supernatural endeavor. The Holy Spirit would supernaturally bring to his remembrance, uh, and all the New Testament writers, bring to their remembrance uh, all the things Jesus had taught them. And, and by the way, I was telling first service, uh, I've experienced this in my own life. Not in the same way, because God doesn't give me scripture, but you've experienced it too, right? You're reading the Word of God, and you, you're reading and reading, and, and, and over the years you've read passages maybe dozens of times, right? Um, you close the book, go, go about your business, and then God opens the door for you to witness to somebody. And all of a sudden, stuff's coming out of your mouth. You're like, whoa, where's that coming from? You're a quote in Scripture you forgot you even knew. That's because the Spirit is bringing it back to your remembrance. But if it's not in there, He can't bring it to your remembrance, right? I mean, I always tell people, look, memorizing Scripture is awesome. Some people are not good at memorizing but read the scriptures. Hide it in your heart. Because when you need it, the Spirit will bring it forth. It'll be a supernatural thing. Okay? But if it's not there, you can't bring it forth. Okay? Um, so Jesus said, look, when the Spirit comes, He's going to remind you of all that I taught you. That gave us the Gospels. Number two, the Spirit would also guide them, Jesus said, into all the remaining New Testament truth. And of course, I'm paraphrasing, right? He would guide them into giving them the balance of what God wanted his church to know um, in the way of doctrine, right? This would result in the epistles, in the epistles. And then finally, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would reveal to his people um, things to come. And this refers to the prophetic scriptures, and in particular, the book we're studying on Wednesday night right now, the book of Revelation, all right? Very important stuff. We'll look at that next time, uh, prophecy. But let's start with the first one. All right, when the Holy Spirit comes, okay, he is going to expand and expound the teachings of Jesus. It will guide you into all truth, Jesus said. All truth of, the all truth of verse 13 is, again, the total revelation of God that we call the New Testament canon of Scripture, right? Let me just stop and say this. Back in the first century, after Jesus went to the cross, rose from the dead, ascended back to the Father, prayed the Father, the Spirit of God was poured out. Yes, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit uh, did give the early church New Testament doctrine. He did reveal to them doctrine. Uh, you know, and he did it through the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, right? Uh, Paul said in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on, a foundation, on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Christians said, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the foundation. He is. When Paul said that the church was built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, what he was saying is God gave to the apostles and prophets New Testament doctrine, which became the foundation that the church and our lives as Christians is built upon. Jesus is the foundation. No two ways around it. But, but that's the idea Paul was communicating, that the truth we needed uh, as New Testament believers, we needed New Testament doctrine. And God was going to give that and did give it to the apostles and prophets who wrote it down, became our New Testament, uh, the foundation upon which the church is built and our lives as Christians as well, right? But uh, very important that we understand that. And um, when did the New Testament, when was it completed? Around 95 AD with the book of Revelation. God gave to John the Apostle the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, around 95 A.D. At that point, guys, the theologians say, rightly so, the New Testament canon of Scripture was closed. It was closed. God is not revealing any more in the way of doctrine. I was, again, telling first service, that doesn't mean he's not talking to us anymore, primarily through the pages of Scripture, but uh, I believe God still speaks to us individually, personally, guiding our lives. Uh, you know, 
Well, where should I, I, what job should I take? What person should I marry? What ministry should I be involved in? These are all personal things that we pray about and the Holy Spirit reveals to us. But he's not giving us any more doctrine. Doctrine is finished. Again, the New Testament canon of Scripture is complete. And I make a point to say all that because you have churches, charismatic churches, who want to sound very cutting edge, who will tell you that the Holy Spirit routinely reveals to them new doctrines. New doctrines. You challenge them on that, which I have done. You say, well, wait a minute. The New Testament's finished. You know, I mean, God's word is complete. You're saying you're getting new revelation, new doctrine? I mean, how, how does that work? They say, well, God is bigger than his word. Maybe you've heard that. Yeah, God is bigger than his word. Now, that sounds very spiritual, right? Because otherwise it sounds like we're limiting God. But folks, let me just say this to you. You cannot test all things and hold fast to that which is good if God is allowing doctrines to come your way that you can't test because he hasn't given the, the, the word of God to you yet. How can I test whether some doctrine is from God or is not from God if I don't have the complete tester, which you have in your lap? It's the word of God, right? And besides that, God said to the old pro in the Old Testament, I will do nothing except what I reveal to my servants, the prophets. And it's not Pastor Joe uh, down the street here who claims to be a prophet. We're talking about the prophets that wrote the Bible, both Old and New Testament. So this is very important. And, and because of this, you've got people running around claiming to be apostles. Why do they claim to be apostles? Because apostles received doctrine from God. The early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' what? Doctrine. Well, I'm getting new revelations. I'm getting new doctrine. I must be an apostle, they reason. It's a very slippery slope and, and, and very problematic, and we're seeing a lot of damage being done uh, by pastors, churches, and other so-called spiritual leaders that are claiming to get new revelations from God. The problem is most of those contradict the old revelations of God. And God never contradicts his word. That's a different subject. Okay. Again, when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus said, he will guide you, my people, my church, into all truth, all spiritual truth that is yet coming. And once you receive it, will give you understanding of what it all means, right? Now, the Holy Spirit accomplishes this ministry in three ways. He will guide you into all truth. He does that in three ways. Through revelation, inspiration, and illumination. We'll look at the first two today. And this is by no means stuff you've never heard. So if you've heard me teach on this, just bear with me. It's here. And for the sake of the new folks, especially those watching online also, uh, let's touch on this. I won't belabor it because, again, we've dealt with these things before. All right, so he will lead you. He will guide you into all truth. Well, first of all, he does that through revelation. Guys, Christianity claims to be a revealed truth. A revelation is something that is made known to us by God. It is something that would be impossible for us to know through our own human logic or intelligence or normal thought processes. It is knowledge that comes through divine input. As we have said before, man, physical man, is locked or trapped right, in a box, quote-unquote, a box that we call the natural realm, this four-dimensional physical universe that we are all living in. Uh, people that have been born into this natural realm, we can't leave. I mean, those in the spirit realm, they can come and go as they please. They can come from the spirit realm into the natural realm, back and forth with no problem. We are locked in. We are trapped in this this box, if I can put it that way, right? And, and because of this, there is no way for the natural man to know anything about a supernatural God unless God, that God, chose to reveal himself to man. Therefore, there are many people who, who believe that that is completely wrong. You know, I mean, you can share this with some of your friends that are into metaphysics and things and uh, New Agers maybe or whatever, and you tell them that, and they'll say, oh, that's ridiculous. 
I, I, I'm always poking holes in the box, climbing out and finding the spirit realm. I'm always interacting with the spirit realm, right? How do you do that? Well, I have visualization, meditation. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always, you know, assuming the lotus position, looking at my navel and going, um, and many times, poked a hole in the box, climbed out and find, found God. No, what you, you're being deceived into thinking. You're finding God. What you're finding is demons masquerading as God, masquerading as Messiah. Many Christs, many false prophets will come into the world in the last days, especially the last days. We're in the last days, okay? There's a lot of deception out there, a lot of deception. People think they're making contact with God or coming in contact with spiritual avatars, white masters, ascended white masters, or giving them all kinds of spiritual truth that will equip them for these last days until the, the, the new Messiah comes. Maitreya Buddha, uh, Jesus was the Messiah for the, for, well, for the current age, the uh, Piscean age. There's another Messiah coming for the new age. Uh, that's what they call New Agers, the age of Aquarius. And he's, he's getting ready to be revealed, right? And, 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 and the world has been prepared for this coming Messiah. We, we know him as the Antichrist, who will deceive the world. I'm getting off the subject. Uh, come back on Wednesday. We'll talk about that more, okay? But uh, the Antichrist is going to deceive people when he comes to thinking he's the Messiah that the world's been waiting for and uh, bring the world into a utopian period, which for a little while will happen. But when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, they won't escape, right? But man is locked in this box. I know some people think, no, not really, but that's absolutely true. It's what the Bible teaches. Um, and as such, human beings, fallen man, cannot find God on their own. I mean, you know, Jesus is the good shepherd who goes out looking for lost sheep, right? The lost sheep don't go out looking for him, he looks for us. Okay, Job said many centuries ago, can a man by searching find God? And of course, it was a rhetorical question. The answer is no, absolutely not. That there is no way the natural man could ever know a supernatural God through any intellectual or even spiritual quest. No matter how sincere a person is or how hard he tries, he is incapable of reaching beyond the boundaries of the physical, natural realm that he finds himself trapped in and therefore is incapable of knowing or understanding anything about a supernatural God. And again, guys, the only way for the natural man to know the supernatural God, listen, is if that God condescended to make himself known to man. We call it revelation. Revelation. Revelation is where the supernatural God invades the box. We don't poke a hole in the box and climb out and fight God. He, entered, he invades our realm. He comes into the box, right? of the natural realm with a divine message about himself so that the natural man can know, listen, something about the supernatural God and his will for our lives. Very important. Old Testament scholar Gleason Archer put it this way, said, and I quote, how then, can, how then can we know God or his will for our lives? Only if he reveals himself to us. Unless he himself tells us we can never know for sure the answers to those questions which matter most to us as human beings. The big one is what happens to me after I die. At this point, it is important to observe that the Bible presents itself as the written revelation of God. This purports to be a book in which God gives us the answers to the great questions which concern our soul and which all of, in which all the wisdom and science of man are powerless to solve with any degree of certainty, end quote. Many years ago, Francis Schaeffer, great apologist, Christian apologist, said, referring to God, he wrote, God is alive, he is there, and he is not silent. Aren't you glad for that? Two ways God introduces himself to mankind. First of all, it's through uh, general revelation, the creation, which declares the glory of God. Second is special revelation. Now, what is that? You have it in your lap. It's the word of God. But in the Bible, special revelation, some of the ways God revealed himself to man, um, revealed divine truth to us in the past was through angels, dreams, uh, visions, prophets, uh, theophanies, sometimes known as Christophanies. What is that? 
uh, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus before his incarnation. Remember how he wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32. How he um, stood before Joshua before the battle of Jericho in, Jer in, in Joshua chapter 5. Telling him, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. Remember, he appeared to, I think it was Manoah was his name, Samson's, Samson's father. And, and told him that, you know, that, uh, that you know, he, 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 he basically uh, was God speaking to him, right? And there's been many times when the Lord Jesus has made a kind of a cameo appearance in the Old Testament before his incarnation. Now, if he could do that, why be incarnated at all? Because a Christophany is not really a flesh and blood individual. Christophany is God taking the form of a man. A man. A spirit can take the form of a person, but they can't die for a person because to die for the sins of humanity, the sins of Adam, the go well, the kinsman redeemer would have to be a descendant of Adam. The first Adam blew it for all of us. The last Adam redeemed us by becoming a flesh and blood human being, a descendant of Adam. And that brings me to the greatest revelation that God has ever given the incarnation. I mean, of all the things God used to speak to us, angels, visions, prophets, dreams, theophanies, the greatest revelation was the incarnation, where God himself, by becoming a man, entered into the box, the natural realm, and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. You know these. Turn to John chapter 1. And let's look at verses 1 to 3, where John said, In the beginning was the Word, a title for Jesus Christ before his incarnation. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I won't have you turn to this one, but Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, the Jewish patriarchs. God spoke to them primarily through the prophets. But has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So Christianity, guys, is a revealed truth. In the last days, God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, at the first. And now he continues to speak to us, first of all, by giving us the rest of the scriptures, but then speaking to us individually, guiding our lives personally through the Holy Spirit. So again, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will guide you into all truth, first of all, through revelation. What is that? Well, in particular, we're talking about the remainder of New Testament scripture. But how? How would he give us this remainder of God's revelation, New Testament Scripture? Well, the how is inspiration. Inspiration. You've all read 2 Timothy 3, verse, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, where Paul said, All Scripture is given, listen, by inspiration of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, inspiration, the word inspiration is a translation of the Greek word theonoustos. Theonoustos is a word that literally means God breathed. God breathed. The idea is that God breathed life into the scriptures in much the same way he breathed life into the first man he created, Adam. And I'm thinking of Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Guys, the idea is that God breathed life into the scriptures in much the same way he breathed life into Adam. How? how what, what are you talking about? Well, God breathed life into Adam, and Adam became a living being. God also breathed his spirit into the authors of the Bible. And God literally breathed into them life from God and truth, which they then wrote down on parchment or different uh, uh, materials, and that became our Bible in both the Old and New Testament, right? But it was, as Peter said, uh, no prophecy ever came by a person's own will. I think I'll write a prophecy. No. Holy men of God were moved as uh, to write 
through the Holy Spirit who was inside them or was upon them. The idea is that when God breathed into these instruments, human instruments who wrote down his word, as they wrote it down, the life of God that had been breathed into them, the truth of God was now being written on paper. And that paper, those scriptures, became living and powerful. Right, Hebrews 4.12? Guys, the word of God is living and powerful. We all know that because if you're a Christian here this morning, it has transformed you. Now, some of us were worse than others before we got saved. That's true. I have met, I have known people that were terrible. And I've heard testimonies on the radio of people that were hitmen. One guy had over 300 people he killed. And then God was working. One day somebody shared the gospel with him, started reading the Bible. He got saved. So can a man like that be saved? Of course. Of course. Nobody's beyond the grace of God. But God's word doesn't just save us from hell. It transforms us while we're on the earth into instruments that he can use for his glory, guys. This is amazing. The, the word of God, the Bible, is absolutely amazing. But I want you to understand something. The human instruments that God used to write his scriptures through, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And they wrote both the Old and New Testaments, right? But they, they didn't just take dictation. I want you to understand this, okay? Uh, people that have studied this realize this is incredible because God could have just given dictation to people. You know, in the occult, there's something called automatic writing where somebody gets into a trance and then they have a piece of paper and a pencil and they start writing stuff furiously. They're, obviously, they're in a trance, not even looking at the paper. And all of a sudden, this, these, this deep, profound spiritual insights from, you know, beyond the grave, right? In the spirit realm. Wow. It's demonic. It's just demonic. Now, God could have done something like that. Of course, it wouldn't have been demonic. He would have used the Holy Spirit. But he allowed the writers of the Old and New Testament scriptures to write down his truth, but yet allowed their personalities to come through, their, their own writing styles. It's amazing if you study this, okay? They didn't just take dictation. The Holy Spirit allowed each writer's personality, style to come through, uh, through each book, and made... But he made sure that the Holy Spirit made sure that the final product, the final product was absolutely error-free in the original manuscripts. How is that possible? Because with God, all things are possible. Let me just run through some of these things. Yeah, we all study the Bible. Wonderful. But once in a while, we should study about the Bible. How did it get to us? How, you have people that are criticizing the Bible and, and, and the fact that it isn't even God's word. They, you know, they're not even attacking what's in it so much as the fact that they're writing it off as being the word of God at all. We all need to study the Bible, but some of us is good to study about the Bible. How do we get it? How did it come to us? How can we trust it as being God's word, right? Let me give you a few things, and, and we'll close. But, and, and a lot of this, of course, you already know. But the Bible is a composite of 66 books written by 40 different authors from all walks of life. For example, Moses was a political leader trained in the universities of Egypt. Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua was a military leader. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to a king. Daniel was a prime minister. Luke, well, he was a physician. Solomon was a king. Matthew was a tax collector. Paul was a rabbi, and I can go on and on. But all kinds of walks of life. Number two, the Bible was written over a 1,600-year period, roughly from 1,500 B.C. to the end of 100 A.D. It was written on three different continents, Asia Minor, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written at different times. What do I mean? Well, David wrote in times of war and adversity. Solomon wrote in times of peace and prosperity. If you study the Bible, of course, you realize that sometimes 
Uh, books were written during uh, times of great freedom. Other times, books were written during times of slavery. This is, you know, we're not talking about one kind of, uh, you know, one kind of a situation where all these people were writing, you know, because that would greatly affect what you write. Well, let me just say this, okay? Um, it was also written diff uh, during different moods. Uh, some writers of the scriptures uh, wrote from the heights of joy, while others wrote from the depths of sorrow and despair. And any writer will tell you that the mood of the, of the writer will affect what is written. But the Bible, it just, it just flows. It just flows. Didn't matter who was writing the book. It didn't matter what, uh, you know, times of peace or times of, of war or how the individual author was feeling himself. Um, it's absolutely amazing. And, and here's the thing that I want you just to think about. The Bible's authors wrote on hundreds of controversial subjects. Hundreds of controversial subjects. A controversial subject is one that would create opposing opinions when brought up and discussed. The Bible writers wrote about such things as the person and, na and nature of God. They wrote about the origin of the universe, about the fall and redemption of man. These are controversial issues. They wrote about sin, eternity, heaven, hell, and so on. A lot of folks don't even believe in heaven, hell, uh, eternity, and, and so on, right? All of these subjects, when mentioned, would be met with opposing views and opinions. Go, go to any coffee shop if you doubt what I'm saying, right? Uh, get about 10 people together, or a university campus. That ought to be fun. Get 10 people together and say, okay, I just need you guys to, to I, I need to know. I'm taking a little survey. Um, all right, where did everything come from? Who or what is God? What happens after you die? Is man a sinner? Is there any payment for sin? And so on and so forth. Get ready. For what you're going to get okay i mean think about the bible in this context right you you here was one man on one continent in one society in one culture speaking one language from one walk of life writing from one mood about one controversial subject and then at the same time you have another man re removed by hundreds if not thousands of miles another man from another culture, another continent, another society, speaking another language, from another walk of life, different mood, writing about that same controversial subject, guys. But when the two are brought together under the cover of Scripture, right? All these books under one cover. When the two are brought together, there is absolute harmony. You have to... This is one of the most powerful proofs of the divine inspiration of the Bible. The Bible writers wrote on literally hundreds, hundreds of controversial subjects with absolute harmony and continuity from beginning to end. The Bible may have been written through 40 different penmen, but it had one author, make no mistake about it, the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. This is a miracle. I was telling first service years ago, I was listening to a teaching by Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell, some of you know him. He's a a Christian apologist, very brilliant man, and uh, he has written uh, many books. He's a premier defender of the faith. That's what an apologist is. I first came across uh, Josh's writings when he, uh, when his book back oh, 30 or so years ago was published uh, entitled um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And, and, and he, he lays out all this evidence for why the Bible is not only unique, but it proves itself to be divine, of divine origin. And boy, did he lay it out, right? That's where I first got hooked on, Josh. But in those early days, he also worked a lot with another writer, somebody who's been at, at our church, spoke at our men's retreat years ago. His name is Don Stewart, another premier apologist. Well, as Josh tells it, one time him and Don were in Josh's house, probably working on a new book together, right? And knock on the door. Josh opens the door. Here's a salesman. And he wants to sell them... A, a series, a series of books entitled The Great Books of the Western World. This, what a setup. <laughs> Boy, the Holy Spirit set this guy up, right? So, so he says, sir, can I come in and talk to you about the great books of the Western world? He says, sure, come on in. 
He said we gave him five minutes to tell us about the great books of the Western world. We spent the next hour telling him about the greatest book. And they use this logic because here's a guy who knew literature. He, he, he sold literature, right? They told him about the uniqueness of the Bible and what I just told you. And then they said to this guy, look, what if you had five people, just five, okay, writing from one place, you know, one area, at one time, all living in the same time period, uh, from the same culture, speaking the same language, right, writing on just one controversial subject. What do you think you'd get? Thought about it for a few minutes. You have five different opinions. That's right. Now take 40, uh, 40 authors over, over a 1,600-year period, three continents, three languages, all kinds of moves, all kinds of circumstances, different professions, writing on hundreds of controversial issues. Yet when it all comes together, it's perfect unity and harmony from start to finish. What do you think about that? He said, I think that book is supernatural. And he gave his heart to Christ that day. Because he understood literature. He knew this is not something that could happen on its own. This is a miracle. A miracle. Geisler and Nix. I'll bring this so close. Geisler and Nix, who wrote a great little book called General Introduction to the Bible. I think it's still in print. If you're interested in this subject, knowing how your Bible came uh, into being, uh, get a copy. Geisler and Nix, in their general introduction to the Bible, put it this way. They said, and I quote, In Genesis you have paradise lost, and in Revelation you have paradise regained. You can't understand Revelation without Genesis, and you can't understand Genesis without Revelation. It's all woven together so intricately, it's like a beautiful tapestry. It actually becomes one book with 66 chapters. Amen. That's a great way to put it. One unfolding story from beginning to end, end quote. Christian scholar, professor, author, F.F. Bruce, said, and I quote, no part of the human body can be properly explained outside the context of the whole body, so no part of the Bible can be properly explained or understood outside the context of the Bible as a whole, end quote. Guys, the Bible is the only religious book in the world that speaks of the unknown with the same authority and confidence it does with about things that are known. Isn't it interesting you read that? And things, you know, what's coming in the future and, and, and what happens after a person dies. I mean, the Bible speaks like it knows what it's talking about. Because it does, right? I mean, the Bible speaks to future things with the same authority and confidence it does with things that, you know, have already taken place, right? I mean, um, fulfilled prophecy. Uh, and yet still many things yet to come. But the Bible speaks with great authority. Remember what the Pharisees said about Jesus? I mean, this man speaks with authority. Not like this. The people did. This man speaks with authority. Not like the scribes and Pharisees. That's because he's God. God knows what's happening. God knows. Okay? And he's given us a book to tell us about these controversial issues and what's coming in the future. Guys, the Bible has no equal, and I know that a lot of people say, well, there's a lot of holy books in the world. Why should the Bible be put on a special, uh, given a special place? There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I was telling First Service that, you know, in some of the Hindu uh, holy books, talks about how that the world is balanced on the back of a turtle. Uh, and that, that's just how, you know, this, it gives us earthquakes and things, and, well, I don't know, I've seen shots of um, of the earth from outer space, NASA and stuff. I never once saw a turtle uh, under the world. Maybe I missed something. I don't know if you've seen it. Let me know. But the Bible has no equal, including the sacred writings of any other religion. I'll read this and we'll close. Professor Emmont Tierra Williams, former Bowdoin professor of Sanskrit, who spent 42 years studying Eastern books and sacred writings, said in comparing them to the Bible, quoting him now, he said, pile them, if you will, on the left side of your table, but place your own Holy Bible on the right side all by itself, all alone, and with a wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between the Bible and the so-called sacred books of the East, 
which severs the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever, a veritable gulf, which cannot be bridged over by any science of religious thought, end quote. The Bible is unique. The, uh, it stands alone with regard to any other book of antiquity, including the ancient sacred scriptures of every other culture. And so, guys, when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus said he will guide you into all truth. He accomplishes that in three ways, through revelation, through inspiration, and next week we'll look at the third one and um, also then look at how he will guide us into prophecy as we uh, study this series probably end next week. Not sure, but um, let me just say this to you and we'll pray. Because I had a young guy come up to me after first service because I made the point that God help us. Some of us have had our Bibles for so long we've taken them for granted. The worst thing that can happen in a marriage is when you take each other for granted, when you fall out of love and just start taking each other for granted. Worst thing that can happen in your relationship with Jesus is when you take it for granted and the Bible is old news and it doesn't interest you anymore. It doesn't, you don't have the passion for it you once had. I mean, the Holy Spirit... Phil, you're talking about the Holy Spirit's ministry to believers and now you're talking about the Word of God. Well, how, how do we morph into that subject? Uh, excuse me? Uh, you know, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? It's just like the devil to make us so familiar with the Word because he can't keep a lot of us out of the Word. So the next thing is to make it so familiar that it becomes boring, old news, not exciting anymore. And my prayer for all of us is, God, when we open our Bibles, give us grace to be looking at your word as if we're seeing it for the first time. We need revival. And it starts with how we read God's word. If we read it at all, you have to start reading it. You have to start reading it. And when you, before you open it up, say, Lord, Holy Spirit, please, give me the grace to, to read your word as if I'm reading it for the very first time. When it was so life-changing, so powerful, I couldn't get enough of it. I couldn't put it down. And I was on fire for you in those days. Give us grace, Lord, that we might open it and cherish it and devour it and never get tired of it. And, Lord, that we would want to live it out in our, our daily lives to bring you glory. That's what we need, guys. Pray about that, okay? Next week, God willing, we'll pick it up and uh, continue our series. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is living and powerful, but if we don't cherish it as something that's living and powerful, it'll be just another dead book on the bookshelf. Give us grace, Lord. Give us a revived hunger for the Word. Revive us, Lord, in every area of our Christian life, but starting with our hunger for your Word, that when we read it, it is as if we're reading it for the very first time, Lord, that we are just our eyes are opened. We're seeing things we haven't really ever seen or maybe haven't seen in many years. Give us grace, Lord, that your spirit would fall on us, on this church, on your church across America, in the world. That, Lord, your people would be revived, set on fire. And that, Lord, we would go forward in the power of your spirit in these last days to finish the work you have called us to do. That we might run into your arms, Lord, someday and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servants. Thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.